Hello, Roy here. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to The Roy Green Show ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. At this point, most shows are winding down. Roy is just getting started. The Roy Green Show on the Chorus Radio Network. Coming up later in the hour, it's our uh, Saturday Beauties and the Beast with Catherine Swift, Linda Leatherdale, and Michelle Simpson. And uh, the beauties have chosen their own issues they want to talk about. And Catherine wants to get at the uh, National Energy Board. Uh, many of the significant offices of the NEB being moved from Calgary to Ottawa. And I tweeted earlier in the week, I'm not sure that this is all Justin Trudeau. I think he's getting a little help from Mr. Butts. Anyway, it'll put the NEB in the orbit of Trudeau and Butts and Kader. Good luck, Alberta. <laughs> and uh, Michelle Simpson, well, we've got your back. And Michelle Simpson wants to talk about uh, Jason Kenney and Brian Jean and the decision to merge Wild Rose and the Progressive Conservatives. Some technicalities have to take place first. Linda Leatherdale, she's got a different story about what happened to the Hard Rock Cafe and what's replaced it, and I've got something, too. So that's coming up. Unnamed sources. Unnamed sources. I've not seen this term as frequently for a long, long time, if ever, as I see it now. A constant repeat in news accounts, particularly by two news organizations, the Washington Post and the New York Times. Washington Post ran a story which became a huge Trump association with Russia talking point, which included 30 unnamed sources. And uh, one of the people specifically involved in the ethics of the Washington Post, talking to the CBC, and this person said, the 30 unnamed sources make it a better story. Well, tell you what, I can write, it's called, no, hang on, let me, let me, let me say this. I can write a, a, an entertaining, exciting, and, uh, and good story by citing unnamed sources. It might even be more exciting to you and a better read than if I named all the sources. It's called the Brian Williams Syndrome. Okay, now some rational thinking on this issue and bringing that, delivering that is our good friend, Professor Jane Kirtley professor of media ethics and the law at the School of Journalism and Mass Communication at the University of Minnesota. Jane, it's good to have you with us. Thanks for the time. Thank you, Roy. It's a pleasure. So uh, inject some reason uh, into into my uh, wobbly brain here. Is it acceptable for the Washington Post to write a headline story ripping the U.S. president and referencing 30 unnamed sources? I don't know if 30 is the record. Uh, it's certainly a lot. I would disagree with whoever told the CBC that the more the merrier, basically. It's certainly true that, you know, we say as a matter of convention that uh, journalists should have two and preferably three sources for any uh, kind of allegations they're going to make that, especially defamatory ones, not just critical, but things that would really harm somebody's reputation. Um, and so maybe they were thinking that citing all of these unnamed sources would, would add greater credibility. But, 
you know, it, it, this is not a new phenomenon, as, as you know. Uh, the Post and the New York Times with its Washington Bureau, and frankly, other news organizations with Washington bureaus, often fall into this trap of using anonymous sources. What scares me a bit about this particular situation is that given the, let's just try to use a neutral word here, word here the unusual nature of the way the Trump administration communicates with the press, that I would be very concerned if I were a journalist that I was being fed disinformation. That's always a risk. You know, no, any time a source asks for anonymity or confidentiality, they are probably doing it for reasons that have little to do with enlightening the public and a lot to do with their own agendas. But it seems to me that these days um, we're particularly vulnerable to that because we have seen different versions of the same story come out officially from the Trump administration. So I guess I would say that putting aside just the general uh, lack of wisdom of relying on unnamed sources and expecting readers to consider that credible, I think news organizations that do that run a, a much higher risk than perhaps was the case previously, that they will be the unwitty, uh, unwitting uh, foils of those who are trying to uh, give them bad information with the express purpose of discrediting the news media as an institution. Yeah, I was thinking as I as I uh, read about, I didn't specifically intentionally didn't read the story itself when I heard about the 30 unnamed sources. But what occurred to me was, how can you write a cohesive message? How can you deliver a cohesive message if you're going to be relying on 30 unnamed sources? Is it because you went and sought out people who, who substantially supported the position you wanted to take when you started to write the story? Or is it just happenstance? It worries me that, that maybe there's a, a direction determined for a story, and then the editor says, now go out and find the people who will substantiate the position we want to take, even if we don't have to name, even if we can't name them. Well, I, I certainly, obviously, am not privy to how the editorial process is going in these newsrooms, and I can't rule that out as a possibility. I, you know, back when I was working as a journalist, what I was much more likely to be instructed was if I had, you know, a particularly uh, inflammatory allegation or something, even if it was a named source, my editor would say, "Okay, now go out and and look for the other side. Right. You know, get a response uh, or whatever, but you know, don't just." find the things that will confirm uh, your initial thesis, look for the things that would challenge it as well. And we should point out that there's a significant difference between a uh, reporter and, uh, and, a, um, and, and an opinions journalist. There's, there's, a, there's a, a big, the major divide between the two. The opinions journalist says what he or she feels uh, is going on. The reporter goes out and finds the actual nuts and bolts and places them in a, in a row. That, that's true, at least historically that's been true, although I, I truly think that with many news media, uh, you know, regardless of where you think they fit on the political spectrum, we're seeing more and more of a blur between those two. But even an opinion columnist uh, has an obligation not to make things up. And you and I have talked in the past about some spectacular examples where columnists were, were caught fabricating facts. So mm -hmm. while I agree that the standard is not exactly the same, that, they, that certainly they have the right and, and indeed the obligation to provide their opinions, um, that doesn't uh, exonerate them from uh, good journalism in terms of, of gathering and verifying the facts that they're going to be relying no, on. It just made me think of the term alternate facts. <laughs> yes. <laughs> It's, it's, that's a beauty. That's going to survive forever. Also made me think about the time we talked about the Toronto Star 
And the Toronto Star reporters, the two reporters, went and saw the video of, uh, of uh, then-Mayor Rob Ford, but the Star refused to purchase the video, but then wrote condemning uh, pieces afterward. And, and I remember you had issues, really significant issues with that. Well, I, I do because, again, it, go, it goes back to this. And certainly there are going to be times when a journalist cannot acquire, uh, you know, the piece of paper or the tape or whatever for a whole variety of reasons that, that we don't even need to think about. But the idea is, especially these days, where publishing on the Internet for mainstream organizations is becoming second nature, the public has come to expect, and I think rightfully so, that if you're going to make an allegation, you, you ought to have something to, to bear it out. And, I mean, I've already seen this in the context of, uh, you know, the Comey memos about his conversations with Donald Trump. I've seen people write, you know, comments, reader comments, saying, well, where's this memo? You know, when do we get to see it? That kind of thing. And, you know, whether that's a reasonable expectation or not, that's the reality. That's what people are expecting these days. And if you can't produce that, you better be in a really, really good position to be able to say, I can authenticate this, I can verify this. And what worries me about this, you know, panoply of unnamed sources, it's one thing to have one or two trusted sources that you've developed over a 30-year career that you know are reliable. But the sheer number here suggests that a lot of these people probably are sources that have not had prior relationships with these journalists. Mm -hmm. And again, it, it, it raises a lot of issues. Well, also, when I saw the 30, again, the 30 unnamed sources, I thought the, once the story is published, the people, not only the 30 unnamed sources, but folks everywhere who want to plant a story will look at that news organization as being perfectly available to them to plant a story because they're quite willing to write about unnamed sources. Well, you, you have to draw, you know, that's a, a conclusion that I think could reasonably be drawn. I suspect that the Post and the Times would say that, again, you, you don't understand what, we, uh, what processes we go through to verify our sources, to verify what they're telling us. Um, you know, trust us on this. Uh, we're credible news organizations, and we would not pass along something that, that we didn't have confidence in. Mm -hmm. But, of course, both the Times and the Post have had a number of rather spectacular examples of getting something wrong. Whether they were played, whether they were just careless, I don't really know. But all of this erodes credibility. And at, at this critical juncture in the United States history, the last thing we need is more to undermine public confidence in the press. And, and I'm sure some of your listeners are laughing that I would even say that, but truly, I think there, there is still a belief that uh, the role of the news media is to provide independent review, act as a watchdog, and so forth. But if we keep you know, publishing stuff without uh, verifying it and without letting our readers know as much as possible about the sources, we do run the risk of eroding whatever confidence they still have. And one or two media organizations can cause problems for everybody else by, uh, by their... Absolutely. By their and, and erratic we, behavior or by their agendas. Yeah. And when you look at the Washington Post and the New York Times particularly, they've been on Donald Trump's case since the very beginning. And they've made, it, they've made him their target month after month, month after month, story after story. And it gets to the point where you say, I really don't believe in the objectivity of this organization because editorially they've taken a position. Washington Post, we know the owner of the Washington Post is also the owner of Amazon.com. He has no use for Donald Trump. The stories in the Washington Post are constantly anti-Donald Trump. You start to, the consumer starts to say, who can I believe? 
Well, I, I think that there certainly is a drumbeat coming uh, from you know the Trump base and those media that have supported Trump um, saying exactly what you've just described. And I, I guess my point would be that while I may disagree with that characterization, and, and in fact I do, because I think you know I think the reporting on Trump was not nearly vigorous enough um, during the period of time when he was seeking the nomination. So you know reasonable people can differ on this, but but the point being that. You know, President Trump has used inflammatory phrases like enemy of the people and the, the opposition press and so forth. I mean, he, in some, to some extent, he and his followers have kind of staked out this position of if, if you're being a watchdog, if you're monitoring what, and reporting what I'm doing and saying that makes you the enemy. It doesn't make you the enemy. It makes you what the press is supposed to be, which is the watchdog who's trying to keep an independent eye. But I agree that if it looks like it's, it's an attack that isn't based in fact, then you are very vulnerable to that kind of activity. Yeah, I've often said if it pees on a lamppost, it's probably a dog. <laughs> yeah, well, I, I, I can't argue with that. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, Jane. I appreciate the time. Have a great weekend. Thanks, Roy. You too. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Professor Jane Kirtley from the University of Minnesota, ethics professor. If it pees, you can borrow this one. If it pees on a lamppost, it's probably a dog. I'm so tired. If it walked like the duck and quacks like a duck, it's probably a duck. No, use this one. If it pees on a lamppost, it's probably a dog. My number is 800-263-2428. Put a one in front of that. Somebody said to me, how come I can't get through? 1-800-263-2428 is my number. Do you trust? Do you generally have confidence in mainstream media? All right? 1-800-263-2428. Lots of opinions about media. Here's your chance to sound off. Do you generally have trust in mainstream media? Or do you not? 800-1-800-263-2428. Call me now. Do you generally trust mainstream media? We'll come right back.